On speaking of social justice and speaking about this crisis of the world today, I would like to highlight first like different broad approaches that we might take to it and that I think will be relevant for going a bit deeper into the reflection. The first approach that might be taken to the evils of the world or to injustice, we can call the moralist approach. Moralist approach would be when we consider that somehow the world is well made and well done and whoever does good in the world at the end is rewarded and whoever behaves in an evil way finds uh, a consequence of their individual own action. This of course is the main topic of one of the books of the Bible, the book of Job, is precisely pondering and reflecting on the fact that innocent people, good people, people who behave not only uh, properly but who might be especially good or especially conscious of their duties to others, they might actually suffer and they might experience uh, greater and deep injustice. So today, still, this moralist approach, of course, is prevalent in our society and sometimes within our capitalist system, this idea of the individual personal responsibility. If you really work hard, if you really uh, have a moral code that is appropriate, you will prevail in the end. There is another version mm -hmm. today and it's called the karma version. So that would mean that somehow you might not have realized evil actions in this life, but what about past lives? Whatever you have done before for those who believe in this reincarnation and past lives might be what is uh, helping to understand why you go through uh, so much suffering in the present life. That would be one way, but of course there are more than the moralist way. Second way to approach these injustices in the world, you might call it, <coughs> some call it, especially in literary studies, the naturalism. And naturalism is when somehow you are overcome by the depth and the scope of injustices. And you attribute that to some numinous force, to some unknown uh, wrong starting point, to some uh, actually unfathomable, unfathomable that's, uh, um, event that cannot be described in normal, rational and practical human terms. And so you might talk about predestination in the theology, for example, as you know that was very uh, prevalent at the end or at the beginning of the Renaissance and in Protestant theology, but not only there, to speak of uh, today we outside of theology, don't speak of predestination, but we might speak of genetic causes, or we might speak, some people still today are trying to find something wrong in the brain of people who uh, actually, there is a study not done that much ago in a medical journal that was linking low birth weight, so low weight at birth with being unemployed. And this is not a joke. This is an actual article that was published in one of the peer-reviewed uh, journals of medicine and was seriously uh, proposing, at least it was stating an association and it was trying to draw conclusions about it. So this type of beyond our reach um, sources of evil or injustice is still, as I said, prevalent today within and without spirituality. A third perspective for the evils we might call it scapegoating. That would be to try to identify, isolate individuals or groups of individuals as being the cause of the problems. We can say, of course, today, well, it's terrorism, something problematic in our world, of course it is, and to be taken with utmost seriousness. But this is not all. That's not enough to pinpoint. And of course, there are scapegoatings that are even more uh, in themselves in just as pinpointing to a terrorist group, which is when we consider, or it is considered today, uh, these uh, migrants as the source of, main source of problems in a given European country, or as we know in the past, certain racial groups, racial groups or cer certain um, 
even you can call scapegoating in that way that I'm describing now, when you pinpoint and singularize and separate certain individuals in the present system, for example, as being especially criminal in their actions, even if they are business people, but you pinpoint, singularize certain individuals. The fourth approach, and the fourth that I'm going to put forward now, it's not denying some elements of truth to the other three, especially, of course, I don't wish to deny that there is a moral personal responsibility for how we behave in the world. How can I deny that? But that's not. Unfortunately, one could say that's not what accounts for a people's life today, or I think a long history. That's not the most important element, and that's definitely not enough to explain uh, people's suffering and the current crisis, this individual moral behavior. Is it true that there is something that escapes us when we try to go and look into the eye to the horrors of our uh, present moment and horrors of history? That would be according to this naturalist approach. Well, it is true, and that's in the theology, it's called this original sin. That's something that needs to be taken into account, I think. But again, that's by far not enough, and that's not sufficient to speak of an original sin and then take as a passive attitude about the injustices of the world. Uh, scapegoating, of course, scapegoating for a minority, scapegoating for a weak as a part of the population is outright wrong to my way of seeing it, but as I said, singularizing on particular individuals that use their position of power to actually uh, cause troubles for others, that I also find it's a relevant uh, aspect of um, this crisis of today and what is going on in the world. But all this, I think it's missing what we can call the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room would of course be the approach to current crisis and to social injustice that's a systemic critique, or you can call it structural sin. This structural sin is a notion that is relatively new to speak of. Structural sin is to speak of structures, of systemic arrangements of how we live together that in themselves are uh, causing injustice. And this, speaking of structural arrangements, we have a Pope now, Pope Francis, that uh, actually was there to say this system, and he referred especially to the economic system that we uh, have as our own today, this economic system, said Francis a few years ago, kills. Not this particular capitalist, this particular business person is taking advantage in an unfair way of his or her workers, but he spoke about the system. I was in Germany at that time, and the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is one of the important newspapers in Germany, just had uh, the headlines after it was published, Capitalism Kills, and then they published Der Papst Irrt, the Pope Erz, right? It's, it's mistaken. And the editor of the Süddeutsche Zeitung was the director, was amazed at the uh, amount of letters they received as never before. They had received so much or so many letters that were actually against their big editorial and their big headline, as there was a reaction supporting this critique that was a systemic critique. And that was done, uh, as I said, in the context of this uh, um, speech of the Pope. I myself have done something called an ethical critique of capitalism. In, has three aspects, but I will not develop it in full today. But if somebody has interest in that, I can refer to some text. But I want to only highlight what I consider are three of the main aspects of this critique. But before I do, let me also point from the start that my alternative to capitalism is not, not state-controlled economy. That uh, I would not like to live in a country where some bureaucrats in the state are telling everybody else how they have to run their business or what to do. I would not like to live in a country where private initiative is strangled and doesn't exist anymore. Actually, I can tell you I am a businesswoman myself because our monastery, we have a workshop with ceramics. So we make ceramics 
I personally don't, but at the monastery, and uh, we sell ceramics and we get money for what we sell. We have a shop of ceramics. So do I find there is something wrong with having a private initiative and having a private business? By all means, no. Do I think there is something wrong by selling that for money? By all means, nothing wrong. Now, what is then the core, the simple core of my critique? Do I think there is something wrong in having an economical theory that says we at my monastery should be, if we are good businesswomen, if we do what we ought from an economical perspective, we should be selling our ceramics to obtain the maximal profit. Do I think there is something wrong with doing that? But of course, this is perverse, that's what I think. If we were to orient our economic activity at the monastery, our selling of ceramics to the maximization of profit, which is not a marginal aspect of uh, current capitalist theory, but it is what uh, strategies to obtain that are taught at the economy schools all over the world today. One first thing we would maybe choose to do is we mostly work within the community, but we have a couple of people that help in the workshop. What about paying them less? Could we do that? Are they desperate enough, these two people who help us at the monastery, to accept a reduction in what we pay them? Let's try. And then we would have a greater profit for the monastery. Wouldn't that be good? Another option is we have a reputation as good ceramists. So maybe we could try, at least for a period of time, to decrease the quality of our paintings, because we do the paintings ourselves, so they become particularly beautiful. But because of reputation, maybe nobody would notice if we just mix a bit of less expensive materials in our colors for the next few years, right? And maybe later on, let's go back to the high quality, so calculate at least what would be the most profitable way of doing it. See why I'm mentioning that as perversion? Because if you really take it seriously and you really try to do that, you end up choking, strangling the best in you as, per, as people, and you start devising strategies that, of course, are deeply and directly harmful for others, like these two people that help us at the workshop would be directly harmed by that strategy, but it's even at a deeper level, it's strangling, as I said, what I think constitutes a basis for an economy that can be human and called human. Is that assumption that it's a goal in itself to just be able to obtain a maximum profit and that doing that is the best incentive for running a healthy so-called economy. But there is something else that, as I said, it's, I will only say a bit, uh, quicker, but uh, capitalism is also presented usually as um, the defender of freedom. And sometimes it comes capitalism as, or it comes two things, freedom very cherished by people, and I started saying that by me, um, freedom is not a second range value, it's a first range value. I don't want to compromise on that. Equality, it's also likewise for most people a first <coughs> range value. But, so runs sometimes the, uh, the perspective on these big uh, economic perspectives is you might sometimes have a clash between so-called freedom, so-called equality, and also in broad strokes, capitalism would be, or capitalists would be those who favor, in case of clash, to have freedom before equality. And socialists or communists or alternatives would be those who chose to, in case of clash, to promote equality and are ready to compromise on freedom. Well, this, as I said, broad stroke theoretical approach, I think it's not at all realistic, because what I think is a worthy economical system is one that promotes, of course, both. And I think this is no utopian idea, but on the contrary, to start from the premise, and that's why the faith element is, of course, what motivates me to have this type of view about our world and economy. I have a faith, and my faith is that the world is well done. I do also acknowledge this uh, reality that we call in theology original sin, but this has not been strong enough to undo the work of God. So the world is well done. So how come? It seems to us almost a naive 
idea to think that we can organize ourselves as a society, also at the economical level, to in the pursuit of both freedom and equality. How come, from where, from whence it comes this idea that we have, of course, naturally, to choose between one or the other, that they can be incompatible. The freedom <coughs> that's uh, at the core of uh, this capitalist system as we experience it today, I don't think it deserves the name of freedom, because that's a name that um, Jenny mentioned. I did my doctoral dissertation on the Trinity, and it was based on freedom and love, and how inseparable those two are, and how being created in the image of God is being created free, and it's being created loving, with a capacity to relate to others from this perspective that we uh, understand under this name of love, in the image of God. So, why do I say this, that what under capitalism is understood as freedom does not deserve the name? It's because it is, if you want to call it freedom, it's freedom for a few, but not for everybody. And this, I think, has a better name, and the better name is privilege. This is true, that we have an economic system that promotes the privilege of a few. And yesterday, von Rompuy, Gave, gave us some uh, uh, numbers to that, right? If you remember, at one moment of his intervention, he said that in the 80s, there was CEOs of big corporations were earning 27 times more, 27 times more than the me medium worker. And do you remember what he said it was today? 270. That's outrageous, isn't it? That because they are things that maybe we are familiar with, we just get, I don't know, naturalize them or, okay, you cannot be like getting upset about it every day, so you just let them rest. But when you think about it, and that might be this context and this seminar for us here, a good context to just take them fresh and take them seriously. In the 90s or 80s, that's not so long ago, it was 27 times more. We can still, or we can already have objections with that. I, I could, but now it's 270. That I think uh, merits all our effort. And right, Jenny also said, for the last three years, I've been more uh, devoting my work to some of these social issues. Okay, that's each of us can discern what is it that you can do and contribute. So this is what I call, as I said, privilege. And this idea of freedom that I might expand later on a little bit, because it's an idea that from the beginning of the capitalist enterprise, it, there has been a link between government and economic system. And this link has made that even today, there is a period of the economic history we know with the name of protectionism, and it was the period in which uh, so-called national industries uh, were protected by taxes, because they thought, or it was thought, that their private interests were identified with national interests, and that's why this name protectionism comes. But at the same time, this very same period where those big businesses were protected, like carbon industry in England and elsewhere, or the textiles, were protected by these government decisions. At the same time, the same government was making decisions against the workers that were working in these factories, for example, forbidding them the right to demonstrate, or imprisoning them if they dared to demonstrate, or allowing children to be working in these big factories. So it's a bit ironic that up to today we still call this period of uh, economic history protectionism where the most vulnerable, that is the children, were not protected at all. Well, somewhere, again, the few, right, the children of well, to do, or the children of the workers. In Catalonia, in my country, there is this woman called, in Catalan, we, well, it's called Isabel Sincoras, that's Isabel or Elizabeth Five Hours, that's her name. And this is, who is this woman? It was a woman who, at the end of the 19th century, so not very far uh, in history, devoted all her life to achieve that children in Catalonia at that time did not work more than five hours a day in the factories. That's another 
aspect of something that I said end of 19th century, but today it is in sweatshops all over that they keep appearing in the newspaper uh, notices that point to this fact that uh, labor of children is not only being allowed, but is being promoted in some instances for a greater gain. For example, you might, some of you at least have read those reports of children in these coltan mines in Congo. That you can say, oh, Congo, that's of course one of these not yet good civilized countries. Well, of course, that's dependent on a, a chain, right? It has to do with what I was trying to point out as a systemic problem. Mm, my second, that I said, I would do that a bit quicker, a second critique of, well, and just a final one, that when you speak about this capitalism defending the freedom in 2009, I was studying the so-called pandemic flu and the pandemic uh, vaccine that was developed uh, to respond to this crisis that was threatening to be so uh, dreadful and killing millions of people. You remember that, right, in 2009. It was even said that people would need to have two doses of a vaccine when it was announced that the vaccine was available for this pandemic. Okay, but what uh, also was public and known, and I would like to reflect on, is the following. The WHO, the same health authority that was calling this flu pandemic level six, that's the maximum level of alert. The same one was the one who granted and decided to respect those already granted patents to four pharmaceutical companies, which meant that, and you might also in your country have heard that then in 2009, maybe we will not have vaccine enough for everybody. Did you remember that? Do you remember? Wait a minute, this is the maximum level of health alert in the world. They are telling us, use the masks, maybe millions, probably, they said, Margaret Chan, the director of the WHO, most likely millions will die of this, because at the beginning we didn't have the vaccine then. The vaccine was problematic, but I won't go into that now. Comes the vaccine, so the solution. And then the maximum health authority of the world, together with the national health authorities, consider proper to allow for businesses to hold the patent, which means to increase their revenues, instead of what? Instead of having all laboratories in the country making the vaccine. Wouldn't that be the logical thing? What is this? What system is this? Is that crazy? That the profit of four businesses that, on top of that, are one of the most profitable in the world already, and were already then. What sense does it make? How are we organized? worldwide. How, how come? Where are the voices in science and in politics that said this is outrageous? Of course, this we are not going to do. We are so happy and thankful that scientists tell us there is a solution for this scary pandemic, so let's start working. Let's make the vaccine as soon as possible, as quick as possible, and then distribute it as quick and as soon as possible. No, because we have some rules, and the rules are that if somebody has a patent, and then we could go into how these rules were put in place and how they are upheld, these rules of patent. But it's worse than that, because this company said, well, we won't have, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge for us to make vaccine for everybody, so let us change the way we make the vaccine. And they said, because otherwise we won't have time and, and capacity to do it for everybody. And they changed it and said, we'll use more adjuvant and less of the specific antigen of the vaccine. That was an experiment at broad scale that was totally avoidable if the option of having all laboratories make it had been put in place. Well, do we have any further evidence that I have to do a bit quicker now? But Poland was the only co country, Poland, said no to all this. I said, where are the voices? Well, one voice was there, Eva Kopasz, was then the Minister of Health. And why could she be one that raised her voice against this? It's because Eva Kopasz was still a specialist of internal medicine on service, that some politicians that take care of health are not themselves well trained in medicine. She was and was practicing and then was elected or appointed to be a minister. And the first thing that happened to her while being in office is that pharmaceutical company Novartis uh, asked for permission to do a study with homeless people in uh, Poland. And of that study they gave, they were trying a new flu vaccine, in that case not for the swine flu but for the avian flu. And this new vaccine they administered to 25 homeless people in exchange for 
a sandwich and eight died of those 25. And in the middle of that, Eva Kupash dealt with this industry and dealt with the lack of evidence that was before that trial was done. And I don't go into this, but that was the reason she said not in Poland. So Poland did not buy one single dose of that vaccine. Okay, do we know now how did Poland, Poland fare in that epidemic, right? Yes, we do. Did they have much more mortality or morbidity than any other country? They did not. Did they have less? Also not. So from that perspective, that vaccine was not helpful. And on top of that, we know today that 800 children, uh, there are many more reports, but this is the most conservative and widely officially accepted data that I'm giving to you. 800 children with an, unfortunately, up to now, uncurable disease called uh, uh, narcolepsy that was caused by the vaccine, in this case, the pandemic made by GlaxoSmithKline. So we have an absurd way of organizing what it is a medical emergency and how can it be handled, a prevalence of private interest, not in front of the interest of everybody, but in front of the life of millions potentially. And then we have on top of that problems that are more specific and I won't go much into it. So that will be to illustrate this first point, why I speak about a systemic critique as being needed, because this is not all oh, the CEO of this GlaxoSmithKline, let's go after him or her. Okay, I would be willing to do that, but that's, you, you see what I mean, right? That's not the problem. Let's go after Margaret Chan. The European Parliament did that. And what? They had a report, they had a discussion. It was fake pandemic, it was called, because there was not enough scientific evidence to justify that. And what happened? Nothing happened in terms of uh, how can that in the future be prevented or where are the personal responsibilities? So again, I think we should do something um, to make accountable people who make decisions at those levels, but that's not the problem. It's not Margaret Chan, the then director of the WHO. The problem is not the CEO of this company. The problem is something, unfortunately, much deeper and of this systemic level that we, I think we, we have to address. <clears throat> and examples, unfortunately, of the medical field, I, I could go on in giving others, which, uh, okay, I, I don't do now. Now, second point is, this first one would be the fallacy of freedom. I already spoke of the perversion of the maximization of profit. And there we could talk of something called opportunity cost. An opportunity cost is maybe also known from all of you. That's also learned in the schools of economy and that's something that if you are the uh, CEO of a company, the shareholders uh, are asking of you the maximum profit and they are asking of you the calculation of the opportunity cost, which is you have to calculate. If I have my business in Bruges, Bruges, do I say it right? Bruges, Brugge, Brugge, I wanted to say like this, in Brugge, versus Vietnam, what is most cost effective? But I'm obliged, but the, by this way of understanding good business and good economy to make the calculations, otherwise the shareholders will fire me. So I have to calculate. Of course, if I am selling my products in Brugge, it seems crazy that I make them in Vietnam, but it might seem crazy, but let's make the numbers. And it might come out that it's cheaper because I can explode people in Vietnam so hardly, I can care less or I don't need to care about the environmental consequences that it might be worth it in terms of, again, maximization of profit, that I just move my factory in Vietnam and then I bring the products back and sell them here. If I make the cost calculation, the cost of opportunity, and it turns out to be positive for what I'm doing, that's what I have to do. So that's another aspect, that's a systemic aspect, and it's causing a competition in the wrong way. Because then if Vietnam is the most profitable in that perverse way uh, country, then maybe Bangladesh will say, okay, let's be the one. So let's make even less, mm, uh, that we can even offer that for less money. And then let's go down. And this is not only happening in Vietnam or Bangladesh, that's happening in, in Europe also, because now we have some regulations in Europe that say governments cannot uh, go against this free competition, but free competition is understood in the following way. Even Barcelona, the city major that we have now, according to her own mm, program when she came into office, says, no, no, I want to re Make, make public again some of the businesses that have been sold, for example, let's say the parkings in the city, right? The parkings, parking is right, huh? So the, the parking is right in English? 
Okay, so the parkings. They were sold, the ones inexplicably, the ones in the center of the city of Barcelona are sold to private companies that make huge profits, and the ones in the periphery of the city that much less people use are not profitable, they remain of public uh, uh, property. Let's say that the city major says, no, no, we are going to reverse that, right? Well, she has to show that she is going to be able to handle them at a less cost than the private company who is doing now is doing it, because otherwise it's against the law to do this. But she would not want to do it to have more profit, she would want to do it to pay better the workers and to have whatever profit comes, even if it's less profit, but whatever profit comes to be invested in the city. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that the kind of projects that might, little by little, and not in a magic way, start helping us to move and orient our world differently? But it's forbidden. By what? By European law. By the way that the Tribunal of Justice of the European uh, Court, and this I also address you to an author if you want to go deeper into that, called Dieter Grimm, who was the judge of uh, Constitutional Court in Germany, and has written about the so-called Constitution of the European treaties. And that would be a whole, again, chapter to explore, but it's also systemic. It's not the problem of this or that business person, of this or that politician or city major. Is We do have today a rule that says you cannot do, for example, in prisons. I am uh, uh, also government that runs prisons, and then I want to treat well the prisoners, right? Or decently the prisoners. Well, I cannot do that if there is a company that says, I'm going to feed your prisoners for less money than the company you have now. Okay, I can say I don't care about that. I want to feed the prisoners well, so I don't, I'm not interested. This company sues you as a government, goes to the European, uh, not Court of Human Rights, but the European Court of Justice, and says, hey, they are against free competition, because that's a government agency or a government body that is not, it's making some favoritism, it's not acting according to what we have agreed we should all act and it would be good that we all act, which is free competition. So those are concrete examples and those are not imaginary examples. This is the way it happens with the prisons or with the schools or with any other system now that in Europe is uh, possible to sue a government body that makes a decision that does not favor the most maximization of profit, or in that sense, it does not give the uh, service or the, the responsibility to the business that does it for a lesser price. This is perverse, as I said, and this is something that as soon as possible, I think we need to um, see the elephant in the middle of the room and then do each one how she or he sees fit, but uh, an organized work to, to quickly and urgently reorient that. But besides that, there is something else called the program to obsolescence, right? Have you wondered how can it be that things made 100 years ago sometimes are more lasting, or even less than 100 years, even washing machines, right? Some washing machines from the past, they last 20 years and 30 years, some people have washing machines, but the ones they make now, they don't seem to be the same, right? Oh, is science going backwards? Are we getting worse in making washing machines or any other kind of items? No, we are not, of course not. Science is not going backwards, it's going forward, it's getting better. But the engineers are being requested to make things that break. Because, again, it's the logic. If you, as a business, need to take seriously the logic of the maximization of profit, so selling a washing machine that lasts for 30 years is not very smart. <coughs> because you won't get this customer to, to buy another one in your lifetime. So better to make one that in a few years uh, will demand to be repaired. And that's applied and called programmed obsolescence. That is not only a perverse uh, view or way of handling economics, but it causes also piles and piles of unnecessary garbage that we send to Africa and we send to other places, and that's a whole another chapter. And of course, the last point of this that I said I was going to do quick, and I realize I'm not doing that quick, but um, the last point of this uh, critique uh, to capitalism is the so-called surplus value and the dignity of the worker, right? It's having this, uh, that in, in the best way I can summarize is when in 2004 I was translator for the Benedictine Abbots Conference in Rome, 
and I had to translate somebody who was a friend, an intimate personal friend of the abbot primate uh, at that time, which was not Kerwolf, the abbot, and the friend, I don't remember his name, but was a previous directive of Deutsche Bank. And I had to translate him and he was saying, some people accuse us capitalists of not being ethical. And they say, because we go to third world country and <coughs> we pay the work of somebody one euro and we earn 1,000 euro. And they say, this is not ethical, right? But he said, but they are wrong, those who cr criticize us, because the problem is not how much we pay, how much we earn. That's not the ethical question, according to him. The ethical question is, before we went to this third world country, how much was this person earning? If that person was earning 10, and because of our activity, now it's down to one, that I would call unethical. But if that person was dying from hunger, and we go and give one euro, that's a good thing to do. I choked when I was translating. <laughs> so I just said, look at what he's saying, and then I made my speech, and then they didn't, did not invite me again to be translating. <laughs> <coughs> so that, um, I think, also a good way to, to update this outrageous and uh, scandalous way to organize and how serious and dramatic that is has been for me a book that I can recommend, and I, it appeared only a few months ago in England, and the book is called Hired. Uh, it's by journalist James Bloodworth, and the subtitle will give you a quick hint of what the book is all about. The subtitle says, Hired, six months undercover in low-wage Britain. So the journalist, what he did is go undercover, that is, without identifying himself as a journalist, worked in four of the low-paid jobs in Britain and actually explains what has happened. And it, the book came out in March, so this is from now. What were these four jobs? He worked for Amazon. He worked for Uber, as Uber driver. He worked as caregiver, going to houses to care for elderly. And he worked in a call center. And in all four jobs, it's very dramatic but realistic. It's not uh, an exaggerated book, it's just reporting uh, some good things too. But of course, the overall picture is dismal. It's a picture of uh, utter precarization of the worker and of a complete loss of control over your working space and over your working conditions and not only lack of control, but um, the absurdity to lay out rules, and that's especially acute by the Amazon uh, experience, laying out rules that are impossible to fulfill and then causing a constant anxiety in that worker. They give a system of points and then if you are one minute late to the job, they take a point of you, which you may say, okay, that's not so unreasonable, but they are going to the job with a bus that's from the business and when the bus from the business is late, they take the points anyhow. That's only a minor example, but they, maybe you know that, when we are on the computer screen, and since I read that book, I must say I was buying my things in Amazon books, right? Since I read that book, I have not bought one more <laughs> in Amazon because I couldn't believe that when I was doing the click, so neat and so easy and so practical, right? You just click there and then you imagine, I don't know, there is a system of robots or something that's perfectly and neatly organized. No, there are these poor people running up to 15 miles a day within these huge uh, um, storage houses and having attached to the feet some meter that counts how many meters you are running and having another thing in the ear that says, okay, you're run running behind, yeah? You're running behind in this half an hour and they work like this. And then the conditions in general, but I advise you to, to read that book today. I read in a Spanish newspaper that said, compared with six years ago in Spain today, to fire a worker is 64% cheaper than for six years ago. And sadly, we could go on and on with examples of that sort. So that um, was basically to, to express what for me is the elephant in the room or it is what we should be addressing from a contemplative and from a Christian and from a human point of view, uh, do we now comes after this moment of critique or this first aspect of critique, comes the aspect of faith, right? They have faith and belonging in my title. I didn't have critique of capitalism, so. 
I better get <laughs> to that. So in front of that, and in front of this, this small picture that, uh, as I said, is everything but exaggerated, so it's not at all, well, that's where I think this faith comes into play in a most acute way, because some people I've discussed these issues with that don't happen to be Christians, right? They say, as I said at the beginning, this naturalism, it's, you are not going to fix this. We cannot fix it. Who can fix this? That we know, it's true. That's so outrageous, but we better focus in something else that is less depressing, because do we believe that we can do it better? I said before, as if it was an obvious thing, we are made to the image of God, and so we can organize ourselves. <clears throat> Not in a small Christian meditation groups, with all the worth, of course, that I give. Not in a small Benedictine monastery, with all the worth that I give to that. In the world, what is this kingdom of God? What is this idea of Jesus, the kingdom of God? Was that for a few, or was that for everybody? And what do I believe? Of course, they told Jesus, we know that already, right? I mentioned Job in this individual morality approach that you uh, get what you deserve. Okay, Jesus also got what he deserved, right? He must have deserved to be arrested, to be tried uh, and condemned, and to be killed as a criminal. So what was he talking about? Well, do we think, each of us, that it made sense what he talked about? What is the kingdom of God? How do I imagine the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the church. Okay, the church has problems too, but can we do that? Can we identify the kingdom with the church? And what does it mean when we have now also so many events that in the Catholic Church, the links with these economic powers are so uh, strong or so po po potent? This look or this contemplative or this faith Mm, Blick is German, uh, look into the reality that does not want to obscure the uh, unjust elements and the dramatic elements, but nevertheless is convinced that we as a humanity can do it better, that the dream of God and the dream of Jesus is not, uh, unre unre not unreliable, but irrealizable, uh, can be realized, is not a utopia in the way that it has no place, that it cannot be done. This is the, the main condition. I'll speak now of belonging, but I think because I think the belonging is the is the, the way that can help us orient our activity. What do I understand as belonging? But before I can speak about belonging, is that necessary to activate or to become conscious of what is my faith? Of course, you can say, wait a minute, faith is to have faith in God, right? What are you asking us to have faith in the human being? Exactly. That I can quote Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, is where Matthew says, be perfect, as our, your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, another Semitic hyperbole of Jesus, right? He just says things that make no, no sense or not, do not need to be taken uh, uh, by word. Jesus, at the last moment of his life, or one of the last moments, before he is being taken to be tried and to be then killed, that's what the Gospel of John reports as this prayer that's in John chapter 17, when John says that Jesus prays for us and prays what is probably chapter 17 in the Gospel of John, probably one of the shortest chapters of the whole New Testament. And four times Jesus says one thing, which is, Father, let them be one like we are one. This is not to be taken as a joke. And then it says a second time that they are one like we are one. And again, that they are one that we are one. Like you and I, let them be one. So this is this mystery. Jenny said I did my doctoral dissertation on the Trinity, all the Trinity. Have nothing to do, right, with this social critique and making. Well, I do think it has something to do. Because this faith element of saying, what do I believe is a human being? What do I believe is possible for human beings? I inspired myself or let myself be inspired by this prayer of Jesus. And to not let them more or less treat each other well, right? Let them try not to kill each other, right? Let them try, no, Jesus is saying that they are one, that they are united, that they belong to each other, that they build a community, and it's a world community, not small communities in the world, a world community that's not less than the one I have with the Father. What is this for a crazy 
ceiling of our, of our um, capacity of imagining a future for us as human beings. And as I said, in Matthew 5, it is be perfect, like the Father is perfect. Then in Matthew 6, the next chapter is where Matthew reports the Our Father. And after the Our Father comes this other very important passage of the Gospel of Matthew, where it says, you cannot serve God and money, right? Okay, very beautiful. And here we have Christian countries and Christian constituencies and Christian particular people thinking you can orient your activity to the maximum profit and yet be a Christian, right? So what does it mean? You cannot serve God and money. That's uh, Matthew 6. And then Luke 6 is the other version of this, be perfect, like the Father, your Father in heaven is perfect. And Luke <coughs> has that as be merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. So that element of faith, of course, is faith in God who sustains all this view and who has inspired people in the history to open the eyes to this uh, unlimited, could one say, or can one say, unlimited and deep and bright and beautiful future for the human and an understanding of the preciousness of each human being. This comes from this faith in God. But how do we make it palpable, how do we realize whether this faith in God is alive or it's only an idea, is do I trust other people? How do I trust our collective capacity to make reality this dream of Jesus? That's why this element of faith, as we know already as a Christian people, that it cannot be separated, right? How can you love God who you do not see and not love the brother? But that's not enough, or at least I would like to, in the few time I have, right, to say something about this belonging, that for me it's such a, a key element in uh, what might mean to orient differently our economy, our politics, our uh, activity in the world. By belonging, I would like to start quoting a sentence or a passage in Hannah Arendt, political philosopher, one of the most important in the 20th century. Hannah Arendt, in most probably known book from her, that's from 1951, The Origins of Totalitarianism. In that book, she quotes another uh, famous intellectual who is Marcel Proust, the writer, and quotes him, quoting a third one, which is Shakespeare. And that is Marcel Proust in Sodoma and Gomorrah. That's what the fourth uh, book of his series on the uh, searching for the lost time. Proust quotes Shakespeare Hamlet when Hamlet says to be or not to be. This is the question. But Proust changes that and says, well, actually, that's not exactly the question. The question is not to be or not to be. The question is to belong or not to belong. That quotes Proust and Hannah Arendt takes that and quotes it in The Origins of Totalitarianism. This book of Hannah Arendt comes in 1951. What happened in 1948, three years before the book, was the Universal Declaration or the Declaration of Universal Human Rights. That was 1948. When the Declaration of the Universal Human Rights inspired, as you all know, by the disaster of the consecutive second two world wars, was declared, Hannah Arendt started developing her idea of who has the right to have rights. She started what can be called a critical appraisal of this universal declaration. And why could she do that? It's because she herself, when the Declaration of Human Rights went uh, public, she herself was an apat apatrite. She was living in the United States, but she had been uh, uh, deprived of her nationality in the German state at the time of the Nazi regime. She was lucky enough to have escaped to the United States. She was welcomed in the United States. She had a job and she had recognition, but she did not have nationality until 51. So when the Declaration of Human Rights was issued, she questioned, how can we say universal declaration? What is it if you don't belong to a political human community? If you don't belong, who is going to defend those rights for you? What does it mean? 
What is this vacuum of speaking of human rights if you don't have the organization, the system, could we say, following my systemic critique today, to really make them effective? It's the same thing we have in this declaration, of course, very clearly stated, right, that there is a right to be uh, welcomed or to be to take refuge if you are flying from a danger, from a war, from a disaster, and tell them to the people who are droning in the Mediterranean today. That even more uh, fundamental way in our countries, we have the right of a decent housing, we have the right of job, we have the right of so many things that they are only in the paper and they are not being in, being in the reality. So this belonging to a community that is organized in the way that these rights are going to be defended becomes fundamental. And Hannah Arendt, and that I think is very important, Hannah Arendt said, the first thing a totalitarian regime needs to do before it can oppress in its totalitarian fashion, before it can oppress an individual, the first thing that totalitarian regime needs to do is to isolate the individual. It's to separate the individual from this collective organization that is the only one that will be able to help this promotion of what we call human rights or human flourishing. Isolating the individual. That's why, of course, without denying the importance of the personal relationship in human life, this do ich or this you and I, this understanding of the collective we, how do we build it, how do we value it, and how it's the case that in our current or modern societies, we as individuals are more and more uprooted, separated from what you can call an organic belonging to a um, human community. And then you can build communities of your choice, but that's not what Hannah Arendt was talking about, and this is not what Simone Weil, another philosopher that also tackled some of these topics, is talking when he's speaking of acknowledging, respecting, and valuing this fact that we as human beings are not to be thought as isolated individuals, that we are being born, another notion of the philosophy of Hannah Arendt, what does it mean that we are being born? And being born means we don't come into the world for our own uh, decision, and we cannot grow up in the world without the care and the work of so many people. And is that forgotten in our adult life? Do we want to build an image of who we are as human beings that forgets the mother and all that the mother signifies and forgets the motherland or forgets the mother language or it thinks that it's something you can actually choose? What does it mean for our humanity, understanding ourselves as either not belonging, defined primarily in isolation, or belonging only to communities that we choose, and that is the ideal. What does it mean to take seriously this sense of belonging? This is what Simone Weil, when she developed her own, own understanding and was a pioneer, Simone Weil is another philosopher who died very young and wrote a book in the last year of her life, which was 1943, in the middle of the Second World War, uh, which called the rootedness, right, or taking roots. Uh, so in that book, she is also um, analyzing or criticizing what was happening also with uh, the Nazi regime and happened before with France going to the Polynesia or France in Vietnam at her time. That was this systematic uprooting of the people and this systematic decoupling of the people with what can give them a sense of belonging, collective belonging. And she quoted a famous sentence that said, the children in the Polynesia, what signifies, what does it mean that the children in the Polynesia are learning in the schools run by the French government? Our ancestors had uh, blonde hair and blue eyes. What, that, what, what does it do? to a people and to a person. Today we have, of course, the post-colonial studies that are uh, also for many years already going deep into this. What, it, what does this uprootness mean? But what for Hannah Arendt, Arendt for Simone Bale, sorry, was the main aspect of the belonging was not uh, with all its value, a sort of romantic valuing or attaching to these elements, but it was what you need to belong to a group is to have a saying in that group. You cannot have and develop and keep a sense of belonging without having the possibility to be co-responsible with the human activity to which you are 
making part of. She mm -hmm. has a notion of freedom, uh, Simone Weil, that is a critique to the capitalist notion of freedom that sometimes we say, my freedom is, or, or actually my freedom goes until it impinges the freedom of somebody else, right? And then it's the limit of my freedom is the freedom of my neighbor. This might seem like a reasonable or common sense notion of freedom, but to think that my freedom has as a limit the freedom of somebody else, it's already implying an anthropology. It's already implying that I understand my freedom in competition with you, and hence I understand me in competition with you, and so that I would be better for me that you were not there, <laughs> because then I would be, if I think freedom is a good thing, and I have said already, I'm not ready to put freedom at the second range. So look at how schizophrenic one could say or contradictory is our current uh, um, way of speaking about those issues or freedom, which on the one hand, freedom is supposed to be the highest value and something that we all should be so thankful to, to experience and to have and to promote and to want for ourselves. And at the same time, the others are presented as curtailing somehow this beautiful thing, which is freedom. So what does it create in the sense of, uh, um, a good basis for my development as a human being. And is there an alternative of understanding freedom at this expansive way? Well, of course there is, because this expansive understanding of freedom, it's the one that quotes or equates freedom with the correspondence, and now I'm quoting Simone Weil again, the correspondence between my desire and its fulfillment. So according with this, parenthesis, false understanding of freedom, I would be free or more free the more I can realize my wishes, right? So if I want something and I get it, I'm free. If I want something, I cannot get it. Well, whoever is impinging on me or making me um, separating myself of the fulfillment of my desire is impinging in my freedom and hence the other can impinge on my freedom. Simone Weil, on the contrary, mm -hmm. thinks about freedom not as the correspondence between my wish or my desire and its implementation or accomplishment, but freedom would be the correspondence between my thinking and my acting. Okay, that's something else. That we can, we, we can call coherence, right? Then if I am desiring to eat because I have not eaten for a day, but I have somebody next to me that's also desiring to eat, there is a possibility that I think it's better we share, right? And this thinking, I want to share, and this acting we share, this is not an impingement of my freedom. See how fundamental it is that we have and we learn, we teach children a notion of freedom that's compatible with this, because otherwise how are we going to build a different society on top of that? Is the fact that I having hunger, if I don't have a hunger is another thing, but no, no, I am hungry and I would happily eat the whole bread, right? But I see there is somebody else and I think I want to split, right? And we split. Is this an impingement on my freedom? Of course not. This is a realization of that capacity that we might call freedom. So Hannah, um, Simone Weil, that she wrote in 1933 about something that Albert Camus in 1955, when he published the work of Simone Weil, said, without that, Europe does not have a future without analyzing and taking very serious what Simone Weil calls oppression by function. And oppression by function would be allowing in our society that the thinking and the acting get separated. And that means allowing that some people make the decisions and other people have to implement them. The same thing that for an individual human being, which is separating how I think and how I'm obliged to act. Like many people that are working in places, they have no saying about that. And so they are daily, eight, nine, 10, 12, 14 hours in some cases, or even more, working in a way that they cannot connect their thinking what they're doing, because they have to do what somebody else tells them in a daily basis. This is personal oppression, and according to Simone Weil, when we create a society that decouples and separates and makes even more and more detached the level at which decisions are being made, and those who have to implement, that you don't have a saying, this old saying of the uh, United States uh, people when they say no taxation without representation, and that was like a basic claim. So you can try to go deeper in what it means. And 
that I think it's a good way, this sense of belonging that it's based on the capacity I have to be acknowledged as co-responsible for my human activities, all of them. And what I was going, and now I'm rushing because of the time, but it's that without economic democracy, there is no way we can have today political democracy. That there is something that, if you want to look it up, in the New York Times of 13 of December of 2013, 13 of December of 2013 is an article in the New York Times that, as a title, had, I, it's not literal, but you can look up that the content is the one I'm mentioning now, uh, Namibia had a law against tobacco that passed in 2010 and has not been able, that was 2013, Namibia has not been able to implement her anti-tobacco law. And why not? Three years seems enough, right, to have implemented something that the parliament approved. Well, because of Philip Morris just denounced Namibia government, parliament in this case, right? Or government if they wanted to implement. Well, wait a minute, are we speaking about democracy? Are we? I'm talking about representation, I'm talking about co-responsibility, about the political basis for a better world. How can a private company, Philip Morris, to sue a government for what? For because the government didn't do what the government is supposed to do. No, the government was doing what the government is supposed to do because these tobacco companies are losing, were then already losing market and then they have started to push their mar marketing strategies into the so-called third world and within the third world, especially targeting women and especially teenagers. And that's what Namibia, they realized they had a problem with that and then they wanted to do what? Extreme and strange thing. Well, the same thing that probably happens here in Belgium and at least happens in Spain, which is to have all the um, tobacco packets, right? That have a warning and to avoid that the advertisement on TV goes at prime hour and at certain hours. These things is what the government had to prove, but they could not. And that was what the New York Times reported. They could not implement that because Philip Morris uh, threatened to sue them. And this threatening to sue meant for this government that, how could that be? What's the legal framework that allows the private company, Philip Morris, to sue a government because the government is doing a right thing for its population? That was the um, framework of so-called bilateral treaties, of which since the 90s to the 2013, more than 3,000 were active in the world. Treaties by which countries were receiving aid, for example, in exchange of not passing any laws that could damage a US-based company, for example. But this that was happening to Namibia is exactly the content of something that now has been partially stopped, but that's, and also because here in Belgium you did something about this, this TTIP, the free trade agreement between the United States and Europe, and it's something that's also happening, and with that I will finish, between the European Union and Africa. That, for example, at the beginning of the 2000, at the beginning of the present millennium, many countries in West and East Africa were having 70 to 90% of its uh, production of chicken being local, locally produced, right? They raised chicken and they sold the meat and they made some profit uh, and, and could have an economy that was uh, in part based on that. Nowadays, the proportion is down from 70 to 90%, it's down to 5 to 10% of its economy. And why it's down? It's because of these free agreements, so-called free agreements between, in this case, European Union and Africa, has caused the fact that we can, the European Union can import or export chicken to these African countries without being taxed. And what has happened is that this chicken production in the European Union is being taxed. It's being subsidized three times when the cereals to feed the chicken are produced, that's with public subsidy. When the chickens are slaughtered, that has a subsidy and the export has a subsidy. But what happens with two companies, one in Holland, the other one in France, is that the Europeans, we get the legs and the breasts of the chicken. And we send to Africa the carcass. And the carcass that we send to Africa, it's so cheap because the business have made their profit. They were subsidized three times and they also sell the breast and the legs to a price that is enough to fulfill their desire for profit. 
But then, because of that, they can send to Africa for a few cents, for nothing, these carcass. But it's enough to have ruined the production of chicken. In Ghana, for example, it went from 90% to 5% of its production. So I went back to the economic thing because of the, of the but as I said, this impinges directly on what it means, this sense of having the possibility even to build a community that makes meaningful decisions because you are allowing these corporate profits to build a roof and a system that it's choking all these initiatives. It's not true that there are people, oh, it's, uh, as I said at the beginning, right, unfathomable. Why does it happen? Oof, it's very complicated. Well, it is complicated indeed, but it's not unfathomable, unfathomable, right? It has causes and it has systemic causes. And some of them I try to point out in this lecture, together with this sense of uh, deep uh, and basic and very simple faith that unless we start, or our premise is a starting that this can be challenged, this can be changed, and that we can build our world differently. I don't see that we have a place for what we call the Christian faith. And I would like to finish with a quote from um, a Sufi mystic from Persia in the 9th and 10th century. Uh, his name is Al-Halal, Al-Halakh. And this mystic Sufi was quoted by an author that I also uh, enjoyed very much this year, and he's uh, Burnham Zonmeth, and he wrote this novel Istanbul, Istanbul. He is a Turk-Kurdish author. And he uh, starts or finishes better the, the novel, which is very crude and very beautiful, uh, well written, with this quote that says that hell is not the place where you suffer. Hell is the place where nobody hears your suffering. Thank you.